Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The current explosion of biological research about what makes a male is a topic of consuming interest to at least one half of the population. Geneticist Steve Jones, a professor at the University of London in London, England, in his book, Why the Descent of Men Revealing the Mysteries of Maleness, discusses the biological aspects of maleness created by the Y chromosome. Professor Jones points out that men's beards grow faster when their bearers expect some sex. Fewer sperm are made in the summer, and circumcised boys are more frightened of injections than boys who have not undergone the operation. Professor Jones explores the effect of male hormones, hair loss, and the hydraulics of man's most intimate organ. He lays out the case for and against masculinity. I spoke with Professor Steve Jones when he was visiting the United States and asked him to trace the Y chromosome from the beginning of time. Well, I guess Adam and Eve, we all know about Adam and Eve, and that metaphor of human origins coming from some uh, original couple who lived in some paradise and were expe- was expelled, were expelled from it. That's a very widespread one. It's not only in Judaism and Christianity, it's in lots of other um, belief systems too. And, uh, of course, many Americans in particular, many other people, believe in its literal truth, that there was a couple who lived maybe 6,000 years ago from whom we all descend. Um, they they uh, don't believe in the alternative view, which I which I strongly believe in, that we evolved over many hundreds of thousands and in the end over many millions of years. Um, I tend to write books about evolution, and as I said to my American publishers, I don't mind if the American creationists burn my books as long as they buy them first, but unfortunately they don't, they don't show much sign of doing that. But the irony is that although the literal rendition of the 6,000-year-old um, Garden of Eden is clearly wrong. It is absolutely the case that there was an Adam and there was an Eve in the sense that there must have been a single male ancestor of us all in the world and a single female ancestor. Well, how do, how do we show that? Well, it's, it's really, it's pretty obvious that for the first person to show it, um, I'd give rather a nice illustration of it, was the guy who founded my own laboratory in London, a guy called Francis Galton, and he was, he was Charles Darwin's cousin. And he was very interested in patterns of inheritance and the like. And he had the habit of going on holiday to um, Switzerland, the Italian part of Switzerland. And he noticed something very odd, which he'd go into a little remote uh, mountain village, and he'd find that everybody had the same second name, the same surname. Let's make a, a very weak joke and say everybody was called Mr. and Mrs. Pasta. Okay, we're talking Italian here. Then he'd go over the mountains to another equally remote village, and they'd find everybody had the same surname, but it was different. They were all called Cannelloni, let's say. And as he went on from village to village, he saw this pattern. And he was very interested in what he saw as the inheritance of human qualities, genius in particular. And he thought for a while that this showed that maybe it was advantageous to be called Pasta and Village One and so on. But then he saw that wasn't the case at all. He realized that it was the nature of the inheritance of surnames, and indeed, as we now know, of Y chromosomes, that they're bound to change quite quickly by accident. 
Let's imagine you have a village founded by ten families, each with ten different names. If one of those fathers has no sons, he has only daughters or no children at all, his name disappears. So the other ones become more common. Um, and in, the same happens again and again. And inevitably, one name takes over, perfectly at random. And that original Mr. Pastor, shall we say, way back maybe 500 years ago, he was the Adam for all the pastors living there today. Now, he didn't know that that was going to happen to him. There were 10 other people living, 10 other men living in the village. But certainly there was an Adam to that village, which was different from the Adam to the next village. And we can do that on any scale we like for both men and women. And now we can do it not by looking at surnames, but by looking at genes, at Y chromosomes for men, and a separate system of inheritance that goes through the female line that's called mitochondrial DNA for women. So when we do that, what can we find? I presume that we can trace migratory patterns in prehistoric times? Oh, sure. You can trace them on all kinds of different scales. Well, what uh, are some of those scales? Well, let's talk on the very local. You can see, you can, you can see them reflected quite often in, uh, in known history. And one of the classic examples of that, it's, it's pretty obvious, but the effect is striking, is in the British Isles. Now, as many of you will, your listeners will know, there was, uh, after the collapse of the Roman Empire, there was an invasion of what's now England by the, the Anglo-Saxons, the, Anglo the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, who came from, um, came from the near continent, from Scandinavia and from Holland, what's now Holland. And they stopped at the Welsh border. And I myself am, in fact, I'm Welsh. And you can see that. It's very obvious. The Welsh language only exists in Wales. The place names shift from English-sounding place names to Welsh-sounding place names over really five miles at the Welsh border. They stopped there. And the question is, well, what happened to the original Celts who lived when the Anglo-Saxons arrived? Well, the Y chromosome kind of tells us the answer, because over that Welsh border, we've mapped out the various kinds of Y chromosome. And there's an absolutely dramatic shift over 10, 15 miles from very low frequency of a particular type to very high frequency, which is also found in Ireland. I've actually got it myself. It's a Celtic Y chromosome. Now, that tells us, in fact, that there was a real mass, either genocide of the, of the British, original British Celtic population, or they were driven out in large numbers by these invaders because none of their genes, their Y chromosome genes, are left. So that reconstructs a kind of historical occasion we know a little about, not very much, from the records. But you can go further back. If you look in Europe as a whole, let's say, what's very striking in Europe is that uh, if you look at the geographic patterning of Y chromosomes over the European landscape, compared to the geographic patterning of mitochondrial genes, that's the female line, the male line is much more localized uh, than the female line. And what that tells us, in fact, is that in, his, in prehistoric times, um, genes moved more through women than through men. And that's a bit odd. You always think men, you rape, pillage, that kind of stuff. We must be doing the movement. But actually what was happening was that for thousands of years during agriculture, what happened was that men inherited their father's farm. They stayed on it, and they brought wives in from elsewhere, and so the genes moved further from, through women. Now, we didn't know that until we were able to look at the Y chromosome. How was it, from an evolutionary point of view, that the Y chromosome developed, that the male was different in the genetic distribution? Well, in some ways, that's two different and quite large questions. The first of all, it's a question, first of all, about maleness, okay? How did males develop and why? And that's a question many women have been asking for many years. And secondly, it's a question about 
manhood? Why do the human Y chromosomes look like the way they do? Well, <clears throat> one pretty much accepted notion of maleness, although there are others, is that males began as parasites. Um, it's pretty clear for about the first third of life, for about a thousand million years, life was ent entirely female, or clonal at least, just cells that divided. Then, about 2,000 million years ago, there was a mutation which persuaded members of one clone to fuse to members of another one and to force it to divide. Now, that was good news for num members of clone number one, the ones with the mutation, because they double the rate, the mutation doubles its rate of spread. Much worse news for clone number two, the ones that receive this new mutation by being fused with, they have to do extra work to copy that DNA. And that was the origin of females clone two and males clone one. And once that happens, those who do the fusing, the pressure is on to fuse as much as possible to produce as many cells as you can. The cells get smaller and smaller. They're called sperm nowadays. And the other ones, they can't do that because they need all kinds of um, nutriment and the like to to provision the next generation, and their big cells are called eggs. And that's how males and females began. The interesting thing about maleness itself in the, in the modern world is that unlike most things, it seems to evolve incredibly quickly. Um, if you look at the genes that make your brain, which we can do quite easily, they're really rather similar to the genes that make the brains of the earthworms that crawl around in your backyard. You know, evolution's a pretty conservative thing. If you have look at the genes that make your left side versus your right side. They're the same as the genes that make left and right in a fruit fly, which is pretty different, I assume, from most of us. But the genes that make you male or make me male are totally different from the mechanisms of making males in worms or in fruit flies, and indeed reasonably different from the mechanisms of making um, males in birds, or for that matter, to some degree, even in mice. Now, and that's because maleness evolves quickly, just like parasites do. What is the significance of those differences and similarities? I think it's telling us something fairly deep about the nature of the male-female interaction, in that you've got a conflict of interest. The males want to mate, to put it crudely and simply, want to mate as much as they can and spend as little as they can. And the females want to have sex as carefully as they can and to invest, invest as carefully as they can. And it's clear that in the biological sense, and I think we have to be careful to limit this to biology, there are clear divergences of interests between males and females, which Darwin himself pointed out in his Descent of Man book. When that happens, you get kind of an evolutionary arms race or a war going on. And males are evolving as fast as they can to exploit females, and females are evolving away as hard as they can. And under those circumstances, we get this really rapid evolution of sex determination uh, machinery, as it's called. Um, and, for example, the rapid diminution of the size of the human Y chromosome, which is very small. This week on Radio Curious, uh, we're talking with Steve Jones, the author of Why? The Descent of Men. Revealing the Mysteries of Maleness. Steve Jones is a professor of genetics at University College in London, England. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Steve, moving away from the bigger questions, the importance of maleness in our species. Can you talk about that? Well, in some ways, human males are kind of different from, or have been kind of different from other males to some degree. Because if you look over the last few hundred years, at least until a century or so ago, we tended to live longer lives than human females do. And that's unusual. If you look at most mammals, or many mammals, the males live sh lives that are short, brutal, and nasty. Um, 
The classic example is the sea elephant, where only one male in 20 has any offspring at all, and more than half of them are killed before they, uh, before they grow up by other males, whereas nearly all females survive. Um, that's begun to shift. It's clearly the case now, everybody knows this to be true, that the relative position of men and women in society has changed. In some ways, we're getting, the women are overtaking men in many, many ways. I'm not saying for a moment that there is an exploitation of women, which there clearly is. But the gap between them in education, in life expectancy, or on, so on, things are changing. Uh, human life expectancy has gone up greatly in the last hundred years, largely through public health. Um, that's still continuing for women, but it's slowed down or stopped for men. Um, male deaths from, deaths from violence are going down everywhere. Um, but they're going down much more slowly for men than they are for women. So there is some kind of biological nemesis lurking out there, I think, for males. And it's uh, traceable, I regret, to a, very, um, to a very obvious source, which resides in your underpants, which is the source of the hormone testosterone. Now, we all know about testosterone. It's the male hormone. Your bodybuilders take it, that kind of stuff. But you've only just begun to realize how dangerous it is. What it does is it suppresses, it switches off the immune system, the defense mechanisms against uh, parasites, cancer cells, and that kind of stuff. And um, it's pretty effective. There's a, there was a rather brutal experiment done in the United States and elsewhere in Scandinavia, too, in the 1930s, when many, many young men and boys were castrated for what seemed like good idea, idea, a good idea at the time for petty crime or for mild mental disorder and that kind of stuff. And they've been dying off over the last half century and more. And the average life expectancy of those boys without testosterone was 13 years longer than the average life expectancy of boys in the same institutions who were not so mutilated. Now, a 13-year difference in life expectancy is huge. It's much bigger than the difference between somebody who smokes 80 cigarettes a day and somebody who doesn't smoke at all. So, and all that's due to testosterone. So it's nasty stuff, although arguably in that case the cure is worse than the disease. With the understanding that we have of uh, human evolution and particularly the evolution of the male uh, of our species, what can you forecast into the future as to what we might be learning? Well, it's, you know, it's as evolution, as Darwin didn't say, making predictions is very difficult, particularly about the future. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think, the bio, I think the biological difference between men and women in terms of life expectancy um, will persist simply because it has such a fundamental biological underpinning, this hormone. Um, part of the male problem, and it's a very real one, I mean, I suffered from it myself, is a strong uh, wish to deny the unpleasant facts. You know, men are, are very good at neglecting themselves. It was noticed in the Middle Ages, as early as that, that even forgetting issues of childbirth, women go to doctors at twice the rate that men do. Now, some of those visits may be unnecessary, but certainly some of the visits that men don't make turn out that they were very necessary. They should have made them. And that still goes on. I think knowledge, understanding of health, particularly in the United States, is much better than it is in many other parts of the world. But there's still this big difference. Now, we can cure that, I hope, by education, uh, not by castration. Ditto, we can cure the problem, let's say, death by violence, which is, unfortunately, as you well know, more of a problem in the U.S. than it is in, Euro in Europe um, and affects males much more than females. We can cure that by education. But I don't think we're ever going to get to a situation where we get away from the intrinsic biological disadvantages of being male. So I think it's uh, short, brutish, and nasty for a while yet. Do you connect the um, 
males' strong wish to deny unpleasant facts uh, to testosterone in males? Well, I'm sure that there are people out there who would like to make that connection. I'm one of those rather crusty, old-fashioned scientists who like to see evidence before we make such claims. Um, it's not by no means impossible. Ted, when I was writing this book, um, which was kind of fun to do because it takes you off into very unexpected parts of science, one of the things I can assure you I don't know a great deal about is hormones and testosterone and that kind of stuff. I've learned a lot about it. And there's a huge amount of excellent science that goes on in that field, you know, with artificial hormones and that kind of stuff and receptors on the cells. But there's an amazing amount of incredibly bad science that goes on. It's, I wasn't even able to track down a, um, a dependable fit between individual testosterone levels and individual levels of violence. It seems obvious that, you know, men with high testosterone would be more violent. But the evidence is actually rather weak. Um, you know, it's, uh, it turns out that building workers on a, on a building site tend to have more testosterone than architects do. And maybe they're, 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 maybe they're a little bit more violent. But the architect's the boss. So, you know, he's the guy who's gone higher in the hierarchy. He's paid more. So what's that got to do with testosterone? So I think the... The fit between hormone levels and male behavior, it's a general one, but you can't work out how violent a man is going to be by checking his testosterone, I don't think, or at least, you know, check his income or his background or his social class. That's much a, a much better predictor. Let's look at DNA and ask about what sort of identities or human attributes or lack of attributes can be identified by examining an individual's DNA. Well, I think an enormous number of human attributes are in DNA, in a rather trivial sense, some of which is extremely trivial. You know, if I flap my arms, I don't fly. And that's because my DNA doesn't have genes for wings in it. I descend from ancestors without wings. Um, but I think you have to be careful where you limit that. Some people like to deny that any human attributes in the DNA, but that's foolish. I mean, let's take what, what's the worst punishment you can give a criminal apart from on this side of the Atlantic, apart from executing him. And that is to put him into solitary confinement. If you put people in solitary confinement, they go mad. It's, as, it's well, uh, it, people cannot cope with being kept utterly cut off from other humans. They go crazy. And that, it seems to me, reflects the fact that in our DNA is a history of evolving from a social primate, like a bit like a chimpanzee that lives in groups. If you take a, another close relative of ours, an orangutan, that is a social primate. That lives by itself. The only time it ever meets another orangutan, if it's a male, is for a few minutes during the course of a year when it mates with a female and then disappears. The worst punishment you could give descendants of orangutans would be to send them to a dinner party. That would be torment for them. They'd love to be in solitary confinement. So in that sense, human behavior is coded in DNA. But when you get to the more specific things that human you know, your mood or your happiness or your tendency to, climb, to, to crime or to your intelligence. It's very easy to say that that's in DNA, but where's the evidence? The only evidence is, comes from the extreme end of the spectrum, which is generally the case in genetics. Let's take intelligence. Most people in long-term mental homes with very low intelligence are there for genetic reasons. So fine, in that sense, there's genetic variation in intelligence. But trying to map that onto the variation between Richard Feynman's IQ and, well, I can't think of an American political figure I'm allowed to mention on air. Oh, you can say any of them you want. It's all right. <laughs> George W. Bush's IQ. Then how much of that is genetic? We simply don't know. There may be a genetic component, but we haven't found it. 
Matt Ridley, in his book, Nature Via Nurture, talks about the genetic component allowing a development at a certain period of time in yeah. an individual's life, like language. His book makes a number of useful points. I mean, that's clearly true. And the strange thing is, if you go back to the old Shakespearean phrase of nature versus nurture, and that comes from The Tempest, when uh, one of the explorers says to the devil Caliban, on thy foul nature, nurture will never stick. People still tend to see that somebody's personality, let's say, or, or, or even their body weight, can be divided into a slice that's called nature and a slice that's called nurture. But it ain't like that. You have to unbake the cake. And Matt Ridley makes that very clear. If we move to something which is easy to measure, like, let's say, body weight, and we're all well aware that in the Western world there is now an epidemic, a real plague of obesity. It's more advanced here in the U.S. than it is in Europe, but take it from me, the, uh, the epidemic has started there and we're catching up fast. Now, to some degree, that's due to a shift in diet, without question, and we all know what that shift is, and we can try and control it. But to another degree, it's genetic. People with a particular genetic background, particularly here in the U.S., people with Native American background or with Pacific backgrounds, they do far worse at dealing with this modern high-fat, high-sugar diet. So the question as to why there's this um, pathological obesity among certain Native American groups and Pacific groups, is it nature or nurture? The answer is it's, it's, it's both, and you can't separate them. With the tools that are available now, any individual could have his or her DNA analyzed. Sure. What are the benefits of doing that? I think mixed is the answer. I think you have to ask yourself, what are you asking? Now, certainly for some people, what's in their DNA is of cosmic importance. The classic example, which you will know about, is this illness known as Huntington's disease, which is a completely terrible nervous degenerative disease that comes on in middle age. It's simply inherited. And if your parents, one of your parents had it, you're at a one in two risk of having it. And there is a test which is very good at telling you whether or not you're going to get it. And uh, it's an interesting question, should you take the test? And in Britain, the experience has been that most of the people offered the test prefer to live in ignorance. And that, of course, is the completely their right. And I think that happens in those cases. In the much wider case, though, of you and me and Joe, Joe Blow out there, why should he or she want to take a genetic test? If you walk into a doctor's surgery, your doctor, your physician can tell you, really with considerable accuracy, within a minute, what your future health prospects are. The questions are very, very simple. One's blindingly obvious. How old are you? Are you male or female? If you're male, you're worse off. Do you smoke? What's your blood pressure? How much do you weigh? Okay. Uh, another very important one is what's your income? If you're poor, you're going to die younger. That's universally true. So all this, really accommodates, it's kind of a guess, but for most people, it accommodates maybe 80% of the total variability. Why do you need a DNA test to give you another 5 or 10%? I wouldn't bother. It's expensive and probably not very informative. Yet it's being done by some governments, particularly of people who are incarcerated. Well, that's a slightly, that's a different issue. Now we've got the question of identifying people with a DNA fingerprint. And ironically enough, the first person to use traditional fingerprints in detective work was indeed Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin, um, who started human genetics. Now, the DNA fingerprint that was first developed by a British scientist, a colleague of mine, uh, Alec Jeffries, is the most amazing, fantastic forensic tool, and it's been used to capture a number of extraordinarily unpleasant criminals, and perhaps more important for the good of society, it's been used to release people who've been uh, falsely imprisoned on poor evidence. 
So as a technical breakthrough, that's quite amazing. And the, the law enforcement community is, is using it widely and generally speaking, using it pretty well with, with some notorious exceptions. Unfortunately, of course, the criminal community is getting to know about it and is beginning to take precautions. They're, those precautions are difficult to take. The tests are now so sensitive that it's very hard to deny the fact that you, to disguise the fact that you've been at a particular site. You only have to speak to somebody now. If I speak, and I've noticed the way I did a plosive P there, if I speak to somebody on the sofa next to me, uh, and then I deny ever having met him, all you have to do nowadays is take a swab off his shirt front, and there'd be enough DNA from my pronouncing the letter P that spat onto his shirt front that it's, it's strong evidence that we did in fact meet. So it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty nifty little test. Well, Steve Jones, tell us what new projects and new areas of study you're pursuing. Well, I'm doing that terrible thing which is trying to get back into science. I mean, writing books is kind of fun. Um, it's, I'm, a, I'm like, like many people, I'm a sort of compulsive reader of newspapers, and uh, I read two or three every day. And the web has wasted another hour a day for me because I read the New York Times as well while I'm back in England. But there's more to life than reading newspapers, and there's more to life than writing about science. I intend, I'm trying, to get back into doing science. And I used to work, I still do work to some extent, on the world's most obscure subject, which is the genetics of snails, and I'm doing some of that. But we're actually doing some stuff on Y chromosomes, too. So uh, I'd like to get back to the bench, I hope. Well, Steve Jones, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, I've just read a book, which is actually, in some ways, about a scientist, except he wasn't really a scientist. It's called Cherry. It's by Sarah Wheeler. And it's a biographer of, biography of the English explorer Apsley Cherry Garrard, who wrote the most amazing travel book, which I strongly recommend to anybody who hasn't read it. It's called The Worst Journey in the World, and it's the story of extraordinary hardships as he struggled across Antarctica in the, um, the Shackleton expedition to, to try and get the eggs of the emperor penguin for some very peculiar and phony scientific reason. It's a great book, but Cherry Garrard turns out to be an extraordinary character as well. He was, needless to say, fantastically wealthy, and he was a friend of George Bernard Shaw. And one of the reasons his travel book is so beautifully written, and it it's a, really is a, a monument of English literature, is that, in fact, large amounts of it were written by Shaw. So if you like G.B. George Bernard Shaw, you go and read, uh, uh, read this biography of, uh, of Cherry Garrard. Steve Jones, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Dr. Steve Jones is the author of Why? The Descent of Men, Revealing the Mysteries of Maleness, published by Houghton Mifflin. The book he recommends is The Worst Journey in the World, a biography of Alex Cherry Gerard, written by Sarah Wheeler. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.